The question I would like to ask is when an accused person. When it person comes to murder or manslaughter, if it's family violence. Thank you for the opportunity to ask the question. Where is the line between criticism and, and defamation? And I'd like to ask what is one reform? My question for you is this. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing but the truth. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Gertie's Law. My name's Greg Muller. Like last season, we're going to finish with a question and answer episode, but as in season two, this time it includes lawyers as well as judges. We've had lots of great questions, so thanks for that. Some serious, some not so serious. So, first off, one for the lawyers. This question came from Dara after listening to The Bar Table, the episode where we spoke to the barristers and solicitors in the courtroom. It was said by a judge in the first season that lawyers often use amateur psychology when challenging jurors during the empanelment. So my question is for lawyers. What influences you to challenge a potential juror? It's a really good question. Barrister Matthew Collins, QC. So, so in the United States, you know, if you watch American TV, you'll know that they have this incredibly sophisticated system of jury empanelment in the US and there are you know, psychologists and uh, who, who will analyse what people look like and what their careers are like. You can even question jurors in the United States. In Australia, that's not our tradition. In Australia, take a civil case, typically there's a jury pool of about 30 people on a given day, so 30 people come into the courtroom. In a civil case, we're picking six individuals and each side, the plaintiff and the defence, have challenge, peremptory challenges, which means a challenge without having to give a reason. But the only information you have as the barrister is the name of the individual and what they look like, because you see them when they stand up when their name is read out. So, look, it is amateur psychology. We tend to huddle around the bar table, the barristers, the solicitors and the client, We'll have thought in advance, is there a particular demographic that we favour or we don't favour? So it might be for some reason we're looking for uh, people who are a bit older than average. There might be for some reason we're looking for people who look like they uh, might still be doing their studies. Uh, You might have a gender difference. Um, So it might be a case where you think for whatever reason that you might be better off having more women on the jury than men. But the one thing you can be sure of is that if my side thinks we want more women on the jury, the other side thinks they want more men. And what that means is that I exercise my challenges and out go the men, and then my opponent exercises their challenges and out go the women, and then we end up with, we end up with the remaining six uh, who are in the pool at the given time. Next one to answer this question, solicitor Rob Starry. I don't think it's amateur psychology, but um, it's, uh, it, it's lots of experience in trying to observe human nature. For instance, um, if you have a sexual assault case, then we don't usually have health professionals on the jury if we know what their occupation is. But because we've been so limited now as to who can be on a jury, um, our prospects of trying to manipulate or or mould a jury are so much more limited. Um, And there are cases, for instance, where my clients said to me, I'm not guilty. You can allow the first 12 people who, who are called to simply go on the jury because I'm confident I'll be acquitted and they have been acquitted. So that throws out any theory that there's um, lawyers or instructing solicitors play a role in 
trying to, um, as I say, mould the jury. So I'm not sure there's any science. Um, and the other thing, if I may say about juries, it's never a trial of 12 of your peers um, because so many people are excused from jury service. Uh, and so um, in a terrorism trial, for instance, um, that might go for six months or 12 months, we have either the retirees or we have the long-term unemployed. But you don't have people who are working in private industry generally um, or people who've got children um, to care for or um, parents to care for. They're all eliminated from jury service. And, of course, if you've ever been in trouble, you're excluded automatically. We also put this question to criminal defence barrister Felicity Gary QC. So the challenge system here with having a few that you can stand aside because they might have a relevant occupation that might mean that they could be biased. You can start to see, if you've got a case involving child abuse and the person's occupation is I work in a children's home, they might really, really struggle to act on their oath, to work in an unbiased way. So if you know that, you can politely challenge that juror without it being personal to them. And I've certainly had a situation here where very difficult situation for a potential juror that um, they asked to be stood aside because they were plainly a victim and couldn't um, deal with the case. So I think challenge, that's not a challenge as such, that's them asking not to sit. But you can start to think of those examples as to why it's, useful to let people not do that particular case they might come and sit on another one the following week that isn't so personal and that they can manage to act in accordance with their oath so it's a really interesting question for me because I see it in more than one jurisdiction but overall at the moment I I like the Melbourne system that you can just politely get rid of a few on some assumptions some basic assumptions on what they look like and what their occupation is but usually through instructors that have experience and can judge people pretty quickly. And finally, solicitor Melinda Walker. It's all gut feeling, I think is the best way to describe it. Um, We used to have, you would know a juror's name uh, and you would know their occupation. Uh, Now we only have numbers and occupations. And it, I think that it, It makes you wonder as to why we ever were surprised that we don't get their names anymore because the names never really helped anyway. (laughs) It may have given you some indication as to their cultural background, perhaps, um, but uh, but that's about as far as it goes. I think that obviously if you have a particular case, you would uh, select particular jurors on that gut feeling uh, as to what the general population think about these types of offences. Mm. And obviously we're talking about um, when you're uh, having to select a jury for a, a, uh, a sex offence or if you're having to select a jury for a violent offence. When you have uh, an offence of murder, no juror wants to be on a murder trial. Um, so you're looking at people who you believe could be stoic enough to remain objective uh, and to 
consider all of the evidence uh, in a rational way rather than in a motive way. But I think it comes down to your gut feeling, really, which is you can't always trust. The Bar Table episode also prompted this question from Sarah about lawyers. More precisely, what if you don't have one? Can people come to the Supreme Court without a lawyer? Hi, my name's Rita Inchafti and I'm a judge of the Supreme Court of Victoria. I put this question to Justice Incherty. Absolutely. Uh, Access to justice uh, means and requires that anybody can come to the Supreme Court and appear and have a case uh, and they don't need to necessarily have legal representation. Uh, Having said that, running your own case is not a simple thing to do if you don't have legal training But we have many self-represented litigants who have uh, run cases and who have been successful in the Supreme Court. Because the courtrooms here at the Supreme Court are pretty intimidating places. So how do people go representing themselves? Well, there are a number of things. Uh, Having a case in the Supreme Court isn't just about being in the courtroom on the day of the hearing, but there are lots of things that happen before you ever get to that stage. So a self-represented litigant that comes to this court needs to understand that they will need to prepare paperwork of all sorts, um, whether it's pleadings, such as a statement of claim or a defence. Ordinarily, uh, a self-represented litigant would probably look on our website and they would find there quite uh, readily reference to two really valuable resources. The first is our self-represented litigant coordinators, and that's um, two individuals whose full-time job it is to assist self-represented litigants in the court. Now, obviously, they cannot give them legal advice, but they help them navigate the, the process and help them understand what will be required of them throughout the course of it. And often uh, self-represented litigants form uh, a, a good professional relationship with our self-represented litigant coordinators. The second tool or resource that we have in the court that is extremely valuable is uh, our website for self-represented litigants. So, for example, if you were coming to court and you had to prepare an affidavit and you didn't have a lawyer to assist you, you can go onto our website and there's a, um, a, a short video which is available in over 20 languages for self-represented litigants, or for that matter, for anybody, and it will explain to you what an affidavit is, uh, what you're required to do, the sort of information you put in an affidavit, and so on and so on. So it's small tutorials. We have one which walks you through what a typical day in a hearing might look like, Uh, and that, that is important because for lawyers, the courtroom is their office, but for a self-represented litigant, Uh, it can often be an overwhelming and very stressful occasion. And so the more preparation they have, the better it is. As a judge, how do you, how does it change the way you manage a trial if you've got someone who's self-representing? It does change it. Uh, The first thing is that you try to make sure that you uh, try to explain things to people in as plain English as possible, and we should be doing that anyways. And and that's not dumbing things down, but it's making sure the individual understands what they're required to do, and that means before the court case begins. But we also, I think it's fair to say, most judges in the Supreme Court and and in all other courts 
show a fair amount of uh, latitude and leeway for a self-represented litigant so that even if they might ask a question that you might ordinarily think, well, that, that's not admissible or not allowed, provided it's not prejudicial to the other side, you'd give them the flexibility to, to proceed with those things. Uh, one of the other things when we actually get to closer to the hearing date, I would encourage self-represented litigants to try and get some assistance. And, and again, the court can do that in two ways. The Supreme Court has a pilot project at the moment where before you even issue a claim, you can get a referral to lawyers here at the court. They're independent of the court and they can give you advice about the merits of your claim. And uh, even during the course of it, uh, they might give you some advice on preparation of documents. And that's a, that's a pro bono, so a free service that is run uh, by the court. It's a pilot project because it only applies to certain types of cases, but we hope in the future for that to be expanded. The other thing that we will often uh, do, and I have done a number of times, is when I have an individual and I, I, I form the view that it's going to be very difficult for them, for example, to lead their own evidence, that is getting the witness box. Normally somebody asks them a question. They have to get into the witness box and it's hard to know, well, how much information should they give? And I can make a referral to what's called the Vic Bar Pro Bono Scheme, which is a scheme run by the Victorian Bar, where barristers uh, will provide pro bono services to individuals. And to date, uh, the court has had every, every referral we've made has been responded to by the Victorian Bar. And in fact, I had a case during COVID uh, when we had full restrictions uh, where I made such a referral and a young barrister uh, accepted the referral. Um, she was brand new to the bar and uh, the case was settled and as I understand it very favourably after 11 days of hearing, remote hearing. So in your experience, is the main reason people don't engage lawyers financial decisions? Yes, um, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, access to justice is expensive uh, in terms of what it costs for representation. So uh, it, it is. We have, again, at the Supreme Court and the other courts, we have a fee waiver scheme. So it costs you money to file a document in this court. And uh, if you um, fall below the threshold, the fee that's uh, usually required would be waived. Also, uh, access to uh, the uh, pro bono service which helps you assess the merits. Again, all of these services are means tested. The referrals to the Victorian Bar are not means tested. And sometimes, while it might be financial, one of the other main reasons in my experience is that people have been disappointed with their legal representation or don't feel that they've been heard uh, or may rightly or wrongly not uh, like the advice that they've been given about a particular case and feel strongly enough uh, their case to proceed without legal representation. How common is it? It's remarkably common. Uh, there are certain cases where it's more common than not. So, for example, in one of our lists, specialist lists, which is called the uh, Judicial Review and Appeals List, which hears appeals and reviews from VCAT, the Magistrates Court primarily, 
uh, we have lots of self-represented litigants, and that's because VCAT, for example, many people go unrepresented to VCAT, and VCAT's been designed specifically for people not to have legal representation. The problem is that when you get to the Supreme Court, it is perhaps not as user-friendly as VCAT is. And the other uh, really important thing is that we're what we call a cost jurisdiction. So if you run a case in the Supreme Court, you sue somebody and you lose, not only uh, have you, do you incur the, your own costs, but you also will in all likelihood have a cost order made against you for the costs of the other party. So if that other party's had lawyers and barristers, you will find yourself getting an order requiring you to pay those costs. So it is, um, it's not a light step to come to the Supreme Court and run a case and particularly run it on your own. The next question comes from Kenny. Hi. The question I would like to ask is, when an accused person chooses to remain silent at trial, I think it's very easy for people to feel that if you have nothing to hide, then you should really speak up in your own defense. So the question I would like to ask the judges is, when an accused person chooses to remain silent at trial, would judges look at this person maybe subconsciously as somehow being unhelpful and uncooperative? Thank you. To answer this one, I went to criminal judge Justice Croucher. Over to you. Well, yes and no. (laughs) To that, I think judges, I think, think like everyone else. And uh, there are times when um, not speaking up might make you think that someone ought to be and then perhaps hiding something. But there are other times when you simply can't draw that inference. And to draw that inference would be to speculate unfairly against an accused person because there, there's a myriad of reasons impossible to list in advance as to why a person should be able to rely on his or her right to silence and not have that inference drawn against them. Um, and in fact, the law has built up ways of protecting uh, judges and juries from thinking in that erroneously speculative way. There's a standard direction indeed that's given to juries in jury trials and which judges must give themselves when they are sitting as judges alone. They don't have to read it out to themselves, but they are meant to know it and in fact refer to it usually in their reasons. And it's called an as-a-party direction, which is based on a, a case called as-a-party that was heard in the High Court many years ago. And it's not the only case. There have been many other cases that have dealt with the same point or a similar point um, over the years. Each jurisdiction, by the way, has had slightly different approaches to this over, over time. Um, but in Victoria, uh, the standard as-a-party direction is written into our charge book and virtually every judge in every jury trial and in every judge alone trial will either um, read it out or uh, read it effectively notionally to himself or herself. Do you want me to read it? Sure. All right. So it has a body direction. goes like this. You may have noticed that, and I'll put the, say the accused rather than name the case from which this direction actually comes. So you may have noticed that the accused did not personally go into the witness box and give evidence in this case, nor did he call any witnesses. 
That is his right. As I've told you, as I'm going to reiterate again in more detail shortly, it's for the prosecution to prove its case beyond reasonable doubt. The accused is not bound to give evidence or call any evidence. The onus of proving the accused's guilt always remains on the prosecution, regardless of whether or not the accused chooses to give or call any evidence. This means that the fact that the accused did not give or call any evidence cannot be used as evidence against him in any way whatsoever. That fact is not evidence in the case, and as I've told you, you must decide the case only on the evidence. So the fact that the accused did not give or call any evidence does not constitute an admission by him and may not be used to fill gaps, if you think there are any, in the evidence led by the prosecution. It does not add to or strengthen the prosecution's case in any way. It proves nothing at all. You therefore must not draw any inferences against the accused for failing to give or call evidence, or even consider the fact that he did not give or call evidence when deciding whether the prosecution has proved its case beyond reasonable doubt. Also, you must not speculate about what the accused might have said if he had given evidence. You must decide this case solely on the evidence which has been given in court. So that's a standard sort of direction. The cases are legion over the years that have dealt with um, this sort of issue, because as you can imagine, and as the person's question shows, it's, a, it's an interesting and reasonable question to ask. It probably hangs over every case where a person does not give evidence. Um, and even when they do, uh, it's still there probably because sometimes there'll be a contrast. You might have two co accused in a case, one who gives evidence and one who doesn't. That becomes messy uh, from a legal point of view, but it happens. Sometimes you have accused people who've given a very detailed account of things in their interview with the police, but choose not to give evidence at trial. Sometimes they do give evidence at trial as well. Sometimes there's no interview with the police, but evidence at trial. There's all sorts of combinations. And the direction that I've just uh, spelt out is meant to deal with at least the situation where the accused has not given evidence at trial. Thank you for the opportunity to ask the question. My name is Bakhtaro Gill, um, and I'd like to ask, what is one reform or change that you would like to see uh, in the Supreme Court or, or the Victorian justice system at large? This one is a difficult question for judges, so it's answered here by Chief Justice Anne Ferguson. The courts can't change the law. That's the province of the parliament. That's not our role. And so I can't change the law, nor would I want to. But in terms of the courts, what we can do is to continually look at the practice and procedure and to try to make improvements in that way, you know, how cases get ready for trial, how they get on for trial, how long they take, what we require people to uh, do. All of those sorts of things are things that are within the control of the courts predominantly. And so to give you an example, just before the pandemic, most of the work was done in the court by face-to-face -face hearings. During the pandemic, we had to change very quickly to virtual hearings, uh, using technology and having people on screens as everybody in the community became very familiar with. So things like that are changes that we can make. And I really think that the Supreme Court started uh, moving towards greater technology use 
uh, about five or six years ago, maybe even longer. And that's an area that I'd like us to keep developing. The next question from Ashley. I've been listening to the Gertie's Law episode on defamation. Where is the line between criticism and defamation? Who better to answer this question than the head of the Common Law Division and who was featured in this episode, Justice Dixon? Well, if we assume that uh, there has been a publication um, that is defamatory but is in the nature of criticism, uh, the line is in, is in the defences that are available to the, the person who published the statement. Uh, this commonly comes up in, in um, reviews and things of that nature, restaurant reviews, movie reviews, lots of reviews on the internet these days, Google reviews uh, of businesses, all kinds of things. It's, it's quite a situation. Now, if you say something that lowers the uh, reputation um, and standing of a person, so it's, it's defamatory, then uh, what you have to do is establish um, a defence. Now, if it's a statement of fact, the defence is to prove it's true. If it's uh, an opinion, then the defence is either the the common law defence of a fair comment or the statutory defence of honest opinion. And there's a considerable overlap between those two defences, but what, what has to be established is that it's... It's a statement that's made in the public interest uh, and that it's, it's based, there's a proper basis based on proper material so that the, the reader can see, oh, that person's just expressing their own opinion as opposed to making an absolute statement of fact. And people are allowed, of course, to express their opinion. So if it's obvious it's an opinion and it's based on something, then, um, then it, that's a fair criticism. So that's, that's what happens with movie reviews, restaurant reviews, things of that nature. There's a very famous case about a restaurant review that um, there was a restaurant reviewer in Sydney by the name of Leo Schofield who had quite a high-profile um, food journalist um, you know, 20-odd years ago. And he'd been out to a restaurant called the Blue Angel Restaurant and he canned the food. He, he, was, he was merciless. He'd had the lobster and, it, and it, took, it took 45 minutes to come. And he said, oh, well, you know, the balloons went up there, didn't they, that it was going to be terrible. And then he, he described the, the meat in the claws as being like white powder. It was so badly overcooked. Um, and he really went to town on this restaurant and they sued. Um, and he couldn't establish his, his uh, defensive um, fair comment because there wasn't really a basis. He'd, he'd, he'd eaten the basis for his <laughs> criticisms. <laughs> we had a fair bit of correspondence following the episode on manslaughter and murder. When it comes to murder or manslaughter, if it's family violence, is that an aggravating factor and therefore result in a longer sentence? Criminal judge Justice Croucher took this one. Well, yes, it is. Uh, all else being equal, if the background against which uh, a murder or a manslaughter has occurred is a history of family violence uh, and, by definition, the offence itself involves some sense of family violence, then yes, the sentence is usually heavier on that account alone. Um, do you want the reasons why? Yeah. I think the reasons are a little bit complex, but in, in simple terms, uh, it's often been said that 
there's a breach of trust, a special breach of trust that is involved when people in a relationship who are meant to care for each other don't and breach that trust by resorting to violence or abuse or whatever it might be. I think there's also a notion that's not often spoken of, but it's implicit uh, in those situations, and it's this, is that usually, of course, the perpetrator of family violence is a male, usually the victim of family violence is a female, usually men are physically stronger, uh, women are physically weaker in those, most of those relationships. So in the same way that the law has always taken special care of the vulnerable, the weaker in any situation, so you know, hurting a child, hurting an old person by comparison, so too in uh, the, uh, a male-female relationship, usually uh, that disproportionate power, if you like, physical power um, and relationship power uh, comes into play, I think. Is there any evidence to suggest that family violence results in longer sentences? Well, I think there is. I mean, you can look at statistics, and I've seen some in recent years that have been um, put together by um, others. But my understanding is that, roughly speaking, that in murders, uh, it's shown that there's something like a two-year difference in sentence uh, for fam- cases involving family violence and other cases in general. Uh, whereas in manslaughter, uh, those same stats show very little difference. The difficulty with statistics, of course, is that there are so many variables in sentencing in any individual case that pull in different directions. There might be all sorts of explanations for why the particular sentences in given cases were higher or lower than what might be otherwise the case. But I think those stats at least show some support for the general view that uh, they are regarded as worst cases. Plus, of course, when we are sentencing... we're conscious of taking those sorts of things into account. Uh, and I can tell you, for, as a matter of fact, that judges talk to each other about these things all the time and um, and how we should weigh these things. And we have regard to what the Court of Appeal has said about these things. And, and, um, and these things factor into our sentence. But yes, I think in simple terms, it's pretty safe to say that uh, sentences are heavier in family violence cases than otherwise. That doesn't mean they're the heaviest necessarily. Um, it depends. There's a million reasons why a, a sentence might be higher or lower than an average or higher or lower than you might otherwise think it should be. You know, things like pleas of guilty versus no, a plea of not guilty, um, remorse versus no remorse, prior convictions versus no prior convictions, um, uh, ref- prospects of reformation versus... Uh, low prospects or very, very high prospects. So all of these things can differ in one way or another in a given case and can result in um, a sentence netting out in a way that might be perceived to be lower or higher than it should be on first glance. Now, this question prompted some further research done here at the Supreme Court. We looked at sentences for murder and manslaughter for the past three financial years, and in particular, analysed the average sentence for matters involving family violence and those which did not. Like Justice Croucher just said, sentencing is a complex business and with many different factors. Indeed, we did two whole episodes on this called Crime and Punishment and The Most Difficult Things. They're the second and third episodes in Season 1, so check those out if you haven't already. 
And a note of caution before we get into the numbers. Looking at averages can only tell you so much, notably because every case is individual. However, having said that, what we found was the average sentences for murder, which constituted family violence, was higher than the average for those which didn't. Of the 74 murders in this three-year period, the average sentence was 23.09 years. The average for non-family violence murders was 22.35 years. And for family violence murders, it was 24.9 years, so a difference of more than two years. As a subset of family violence, murder of an intimate partner had an average of 24 years. Now, in relation to manslaughter, the average sentences for family violence and non-family violence matters were almost the same. Of the 51 cases, the average sentence was 8.76 years, non-family violence was 8.77 and family violence was 8.75. This next question came in from Daniel after listening to the previous two episodes on terrorism. Are you seeing many terrorism cases which are not Islamic terrorism, such as right-wing terrorism? And if so, are there any different considerations for cases of this type? I put this question to the principal judge of the criminal division, Justice Hollingworth, who heard a right-wing terrorism case last year. And as you can probably tell, another snap lockdown in Melbourne meant we were back to doing Zoom calls. We haven't had many of those cases so far. I think we're going to see an increasing numbers. So I think as we see a rise of some of these ideological uh, beliefs and these people who seem to be willing to resort to violence to achieve their goals, I suspect the court are going to, in the coming years, see more of these um, mostly right-wing terrorists. The essence of terrorist offences as opposed to ordinary offences is that they're driven by some sort of ideology. It might be political, it might be religious, uh, but it's the ideological nature uh, of the offence that makes it um, a terrorist offence. Of course, as you'll appreciate, ideologies rise and fall um, depending on what's happening in society at the time and so on. And the other half of this question, but there's no difference in the way these cases are managed as opposed to the Islamic ones? No, uh, no, there isn't. Not the Islamic terrorists perceive that they're martyring, you know, they're being martyrs for their beliefs, for their cause. And I think that many of the um, right wing and conspiracy theorists see themselves uh, similarly as martyrs for a greater cause. That's partly what makes them terrifying because they're prepared to keep going even in the face of uh, possible capture or death uh, themselves. Hi, my name is Maritus and I am a law student at UNE. My question for you is this. Unless you work in legal circles, many of you would not be known. In everyday social situations, for example, a wedding reception or a neighbour's backyard barbecue, do you tell people you are a lawyer or a judge, or do you avoid it as it can draw immediate requests for legal advice or create a debate about an opinion on a judgment made by a fellow justice? To tackle this one, first I went straight to the top, Chief Justice Anne Ferguson. Uh, So I've changed over the years. When I was first a judge, I used to say that I worked uh, in the law and what I found was that that led to a series of questions and eventually I ended up saying that I was a judge anyway. It's not something to be uh, embarrassed about, but what you sometimes find is particularly people that don't know you at all, they've got a perception of what a judge is like. And so as soon as you say you're a judge, you find the conversation changes uh, or can change. And I didn't like that. 
Um, but now I just say I'm a judge and sometimes people ask me you know, where or in what court, but um, that's usually the end of it. And I don't very often get asked for legal advice uh, because I think that that answer sort of stops them in their tracks. And I usually pretty quickly try to change the discussion onto another topic. (laughs) I wanted to put this question to another judge here too, because let's face it, when it comes to murder and manslaughter sentences, we all have an opinion, regardless of how much knowledge we have. And it'd be tempting to bring this up if you're at a barbecue and you happen to find yourself talking to, say, head of the criminal division, Justice Hollingworth. When I'm asked what I do uh, at a social setting like that or by people I don't know, I tend to not say I'm a judge straight away. I tend to initially ask I'm in the law or something of that sort. And then they ask what sort of law I might say, mostly criminal law. And I probably only in a social setting volunteer that I judge uh, two or three questions in. And my part, it's not because I fear that people are going to uh, challenge me about sentences of the judges or things of that sort because the sort of people I'm likely to meet in a social setting wouldn't do that. Somebody met on the street or a stranger might want to do that if they knew I was a judge. What I find and the reason I'm a bit more hesitant about answering it socially is that a lot of people find it rather intimidating. I'm not sure what to say and I've, in my experience it tends to be a bit of a conversation stopper so uh, that's probably why um, I don't answer. I just avoid it for as long as I can and you know wait until we see just how um, interested they are. Gertie's Law is brought to you by the Supreme Court of Victoria. And as this is our final episode, some people I really want to thank. Firstly, my co-host Evan Martin for tirelessly sifting through sentences and helping to work out how to put all this together. Melbourne composer Barney McCall for all the music in this series. And we continue to get many comments on the main theme. Indeed, a recent review stated, love the title music, sometimes I just listen to it on repeat. Media advisors at the Supreme Court, Andre and Anthea, for always keeping us up to date on what's happening in court. Head of communication, Sarah Dolan, who brought us on board. Legal advice from Claire Downey, and there's no shortage of that around here. Consulting producer, Siobhan McHugh. Everyone we spoke to for this series, including lawyers, historians, archivists, researchers, journalists, librarians, associates and tippies. And of course, the judges. You know who they are now. They've been so generous with their time and their wisdom. And special thanks to Chief Justice Anne Ferguson for commissioning a podcast and supporting all we did. And finally, the listeners. You've been overwhelmingly positive in your reviews and emails. We loved getting your feedback and loved getting your questions. I hope you've learned as much from listening to this podcast as I have from making it. I'm Greg Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>